Hello and welcome to this episode of Living an Unwasteful Life. I'm Keen Southard and today on the podcast I'm excited to be talking about how to not waste pets' lives and I'm doing that with Katie Lisnick. Katie is the Director of Cat Protection and Policy at the Humane Society of the United States focusing on increasing interventions for and reducing community cat populations through sterilization and vaccination programs, as well as keeping more cats in their homes and preserving a strong human-animal bond. Katie has an MS in Animals and Public Policy from Tufts University, and she is the past president and a current board member of the New England Federation of Humane Societies, and she serves as an advisor to the Maine Federation of Humane Societies. So welcome, Katie. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be joining you. I'd like to ask you just first a little bit about your background and how you became interested and involved um, in this work of saving the lives of pets. Sure. Well, it was an interest of mine really as far back as I can remember. Um, I grew up with lots of animals in my home, cats and dogs and hamsters and mice and rats and ferrets and gerbils and birds, you know, pretty much you name it, uh, of the typical companion animals. And, and we had them um, growing up and, and it was always my job to, you know, do the care for the small animals and, you know, get the dog out for walks. And so I just grew up really recognizing the importance of animals in, in my life just how much of a, a bond you can form with them, how, how wonderful companions they are. And from that, I wanted to, actually, when I was young, I, my first thought was I wanted to be a, a veterinarian. So I kind of went into school thinking that. Uh, I went to, uh, my undergrad was at the University of Vermont, which I, I majored in animal science as a, a pre-vet focus. And then um, while there, I took an animal welfare class. And it was a required class for, for all of the animal science majors. And it opened my eyes to just, number one, all of the, the bad things that happen, which you know about, but you don't really understand or, or view the full scope of it until you take a class like that. Um, and also just all of the other jobs and roles that, that I could do that would have a really great impact on animals' lives. So. I kind of switched gears, realized that maybe veterinary science wasn't quite what I was looking for. Um, I really like working with people. I really like working on policy. So I, you know, jumped right into that and, and have been doing that ever since. Um, so really a lifelong passion. And I've just been able, I've been very lucky to, to be able to funnel it in a way that, that impacts animals' lives for the, in the positive way. Great. And so there's obviously a lot of different ways that you, uh, you are able to help animals' lives. And I know one of the big ones, of course, is, uh, is spaying and neutering. And so I always remember when I was young, sick from uh, school, getting to watch The Price is Right and hearing Bob Barker at the end of each show say, help control the pet population, get your pets spayed or neutered. And when I was young, I didn't really know what he was talking about. So can you explain for anyone who doesn't really know what spaying and neutering is, what it is, and why is it so important um, in saving pets' lives? Sure. 
So, so spaying and neutering, uh, spaying relates to a, a female animal, say a dog or a cat, and neutering relates to the male. And it is um, a surgical procedure that is done under anesthesia. So the animal's not feeling anything. You know, it's, it's like if you were having surgery. Um, and the, the veterinarian does go in and removes the reproductive organs. So once they come out of anesthesia, they heal very quickly. They have some, some pain medication um, for the healing process, and then they can't reproduce. So when they do that procedure, it also removes the hormones that come with, with our reproductive capacity or the animal's reproductive capacity. So testosterone in the males, estrogen in the females, and it, it helps to mellow out their behavior too. If, if any of your listeners have had an animal that has not been sterilized, you know, there's, there's certain urges that the animal has and they'll run away trying to find a mate or they might act a little bit more aggressively. You know, males might fight over a female. Uh, in the case of cats um, outside, we often hear the complaints about, oh, the cats are hanging around at night and they're making all kinds of noise and they're fighting and there's a really stinky smell. And that is all a product of that drive to reproduce. So the, the males are fighting over the females. They're, you know, spraying kind of testosterone-laden urine to mark their territory. So a lot of what we consider to be nuisance behaviors or behaviors that aren't great in a home um, are also minimized by sterilizing the animal. So spaying and neutering stops the reproduction, but it also gets rid of some behaviors that we don't consider necessarily desirable in a companion. Um, and the reproduction, reproductive piece of it is really the key. For many, many years, decades and decades, you know, shelters have been dealing with far too many dogs and cats. They're overburdened. Euthanasia happens. There are just too many animals to, to handle humanely. And so by sterilizing them, we're cutting out that reproductive capacity and having fewer kittens and puppies that are overburdening the animal welfare system. Mm -hmm. It's sort of the um, talking about sort of waste as we do on this podcast. One of the principles is uh, preventing or not acquiring something um, that you know won't be useful or you won't be able to care for. That's sort of this equivalent of, of, of it, I suppose, is that reducing the amount of animals that are um, that come into the world, especially ones that are not uh, that will not have someone willing to care for it for its whole life. It then becomes a burden on the entire society. It's easier to prevent them. It's a prevention, um, you know, an ounce of prevention equals a pound of cure sort of thing. It's easier to prevent them than to have them come, and then we have to figure out how do we care for them? How do we make them, uh, how do we not have them be a burden on our society? Absolutely. Yep, that's, that's precisely it. And you know, certainly sterilization comes with a cost, and it depends on kind of where you live in, in the country. And there usually are low-cost options uh, for folks who you know, may be um, struggling a little financially or just can't make that financial lift. But when you look at it, you know, getting, say, your cat sterilized is going to cost a lot less than having her come home with a, you know, with a tummy full of babies uh, and having six new mouths to feed and, you know, kittens that need all different sorts of care and, and vaccines and veterinary visits. So, 
you know, even that small amount of money that you have to pay is, is also just uh, saving money financially than, than what you would have to pay on litters of kittens and puppies, too. Yeah, you're paying a little more in the short term for um, saving much bigger costs in the long term. But what about the issue of, uh, you said how spaying and neutering doesn't hurt the animal, at least from the, the, during the operation, they're under anesthesia, so they don't feel any pain. But there's also, I suppose, this ethical question of, you know, why should humans, one species, be able to control the reproduction of a, you know, uh, whether or not another species can reproduce? I mean, how, how, do you, how do you sort of reconcile that side of it? Is it just one of the things you have to weigh against the pros that come along with it? You know, it is. And there are many wonderful, responsible breeders who are, you know, who breed animals because they love a certain breed of dog or a certain breed of cat. Um, and they do it for the right reasons. They're in it for the, for the health of the animal to, you know, to keep a, a certain breed characteristic prevalent, you know, in, in the um, in the population. So, you know, we're not anti, you know, anti-breeder or saying that that's a bad thing to do. It can be done very, very well. It has to be done responsibly. And I, the, you know, the responsible breeders that I know, that's their passion. You know, they might even be showing animals and, and winning prizes with their amazing, you know, amazing breeds that they're able to, to have. So, you know, there's certainly an element to that. And, and I never want to see dogs or cats go away. So we don't want to sterilize them until there's none left. But I think the other ethical issue is, is euthanasia. And so if we have too many animals and there's no good outcome for them and euthanasia is, is the likely outcome, you know, is that enough to motivate us to say, let's do, you know, let's, let's get these animals sterilized. So you kind of have to weigh on your own ethical continuum of really what's what's the the highest priority for you. And for me personally, and for our organization, you know, it's it's really ending euthanasia. That's unnecessary, you know, unwarranted, and and just not needed in our society when we have this other more humane option. I just want to say a a few facts. This is from uh, the the Humane Society of the United States uh, website, which you are your your employer there, your organization. Some estimates just about the status of um, how many um, animal shelters there are and um, um, animals that go into shelters every year. It says that uh, you estimate that there are about 3,500 brick-and-mortar animal shelters in the United States and um, about 10,000 rescue groups and animal sanctuaries in all of North America and that about each year um, six to eight million cats and dogs are entering shelters every year. So it just seems, is it, is it just a sort of mismatch in terms of the pet population is greater than the number of people who uh, can care for pets or are at least willing to care for pets and that as a result there's just extra pets that are being uncared for or, or strays or something you know that are it's are not an ideal situation. Mm-hmm. It, it depends on where you live. So right now is a is a really exciting time in the animal sheltering and rescue field because we're we're now starting to see 
enough changes in the animal populations that some parts of the country are, are kind of reaching a point where there's really not an overpopulation of dogs or cats. And in some areas, they're actually transporting dogs and cats in to the, to the region because they don't have enough to serve the people who are coming to adopt. And that's a really recent change. I would say just within the past 10 years for dogs and the past maybe three years for cats that we've seen this shift. And it's not everywhere. It, it tends to be the colder climate. It's in New England. It's in the Pacific Northwest. It's in Northern Midwest um, areas where it's not as easy for animals to kind of reproduce and, and do their own thing outside and survive like it might be, say, in Florida. It's a little easier for a cat to, you know, to have kittens and do quite well living on, you know, living in a neighborhood in Florida than it is a neighborhood in Maine with our harsh winters and, uh, and lots of predators. So we are seeing population shifts, which are, are really exciting, but there are certainly areas of the country, um, the south, you know, the, the southwest, that are still struggling and do still have significant animal overpopulation. And many shelters are euthanizing for the first space or, you know, length of time. They have too many animals flowing through. Now, there was a study, a recent study done, conducted by the Shelter Pet Project, which is a... Um, campaign with the Ad Council and Maddie's Fund and, um, and the Humane Society of the United States. And they found that in any given year, there's about 17 million families that are in the market for another animal. So if that's true, and they're out there looking, and we only have about six to eight entering shelters and rescues in the country, six to eight million, then there should be more than enough homes. The issue comes in where not uh, not as many people adopt from a shelter, so we still have to keep beating the drum of adoption, 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 and letting people know that there are animals in need in shelters and rescues. There are, you know, there's cats, there's dogs of, of any different type that they might be interested in. There are animals that are good with kids. That are anim there are animals that you know like other dogs. Um, and folks need to really take a look at those animals and, and find the, the new companion for them. Um, and so it's kind of a public marketing piece, um, but then there's also, in some parts of the country, we still do just have a, a surplus of animals that, that we can't quite get into homes right now. Now, so you, you talked about, just right there, about adopting and the importance of uh, adopting and at least, you know, taking a look at the adoptable uh, pets in your area if you are looking for a pet. And that's, that's an obvious way, uh, of, of course, of saving a pet's life because it's waiting there, just waiting to, um, to have a, a forever home. And, and uh, it's easy for someone, uh, or it's, it's, it's easy to see how someone can provide that like that. But can you talk about um, fostering pets as well and how that contributes uh, to saving lives? Because it seems a lot of um, animal shelters um, allow people to foster um, animals as well. Yeah, fostering is an incredible volunteer role that so many people love to play and, and can play. Um, it's, a, it's something that increases the capacity and the resources of the, the, you know, the thousands of shelters and rescues out there. Obviously, they all have limits. So it may be staff time. It may be, you know, a limited volunteer pool. It may be just in the number of, of cages or kennels that their shelter has um, or, you know, the supplies that they can, can 
can get. So they all have limits. And if you're living in a community where there are too many animals and there's just not enough resources to go around, fostering can really come in and, and incredibly assist with that kind of that disparity. So the foster homes can provide for animals that otherwise are not going to do very well in, in a shelter, say. Um, often these are litters of kittens or litters of puppies. In a shelter setting, you know, it's just too stressful for them. There's other animals around, there's noises and sounds and smells that are overwhelming. And the animals can become sick or just not really do well. And we all know that, that babies do well with more one-on-one -on -one attention. So a quieter home setting would let, you know, the mom cat take care of the babies with, a, you know, with the foster home people to, to assist. Um, many of the organizations provide the foster homes with all of the supplies, like a litter box and litter and food, you know, a leash for the dogs if they're going to be taking them out walking. Um, so it really boosts the capacity and the life-saving capacity of the organization themselves. Um, I also wanted to mention just the benefit that the shelter receives and, and the animals receive from that one-on-one -on -one relationship. So many times, shelters will get animals coming in as a stray. And you don't know much about that animal. It could be, you know, really scared. And you might think, oh, that dog, you know, doesn't like other dogs or he doesn't like people, but he's really just terrified <laughs> because he's in a place he's never been before and there's all kinds of weird things going on. If you're able to put that dog, even for a few days, into a foster home, that foster home family is going to be able to come back and tell you what that dog's actually like in a home when he's been able to settle down a little bit. So typical behavior that we see in shelters, but in both dogs and cats, is not always what you're going to see in the home. And so foster homes really allow the animal's personality to come through, lets them settle down a little bit, you know, kind of relax. And, and let their own personality shine, and then the shelter or the rescue has a lot more information to be able to find the right home for that animal. And sometimes you always get the, um, you know, the foster failures, or I don't like to call them failures because they're still, um, they're taking in that animal permanently. They may fall in love, you know, with the cat that they're fostering, um, and, and that's wonderful. We highly, highly encourage that. Yeah, I can actually echo this from my own experience because my wife and I, we fostered two cats um, a few years ago. Well, we had, we had um, connected with a local um, group that was, uh, you know, adopting and fostering cats. And we had talked about how we weren't ready to have a, um, a to adopt a cat permanently, but we did want to help. And um, so we asked them about fostering and um, they, did, they hadn't gotten us a cat yet. But we had gone actually uh, across the country to visit my wife's parents' house. And they are kind of out in the country and tend to have quite a few um, stray uh, cats and dogs around. It seems to be an area where people tend to um, drop off unwanted pets for some reason. And we found a, a cat that was uh, wandering around, you know, the house and um, was not in very good condition at all, but we were able to then connect with a local um, rescue organization there who got him uh, spayed and um, we got him taken a look at by a veterinarian. We ended up bringing him uh, all the way back uh, across the country on our road trip back home so we would continue to foster him. 
Um, and then we got uh, just a few days later our other foster cat that we were um, we had been talking with that other organization about. So we um, <laughs> it was an interesting situation. So for a little while we had both of those cats, and one of them, the um, her name was Lucy, um, not the wild one, the stray one that we found at my uh, my in-laws' house. She was quite uh, apprehensive. They said we don't know if she works very well with other cats because she hasn't in the shelter. But you can you know try to keep them separated for a few days. But um, it it would be good to see if she can um, live with another cat because we're really not sure about that yet. Um, and she was very wary of everything. Any noise would be uh, she she'd uh, react to and be afraid of and run away from and well we only ended up having both of them for maybe a week or two we brought the 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 one we had brought back from ohio to the adoption event that weekend and he was adopted just like that <laughs> um you know he was a he was a really um it was easy to see how um once he had been sort of cleaned up and everything what a great um cat and how uh, lovable he was but with Lucy, the other one, his name was Wiley. And with Lucy, the other one, we ended up fostering her for almost a year. But over that time, she became so much more comfortable with us, um, so much more loving and easygoing. And we also found out, of course, that she could coexist with, uh, with another cat. And eventually she did get uh, adopted after about a year. But it was also wonderful for us because we, yeah, we were not in the position to be able to adopt immediately but we wanted to help we wanted to be able to um, help cats and you know be able to spend time with them and um, um, have them around the house and they provided as you said they provided litter box and litter and food and it didn't hardly cost us any anything out of our own pocket to do it and we were, we were really looking forward to doing it more in the future and maybe adopting at some point too wonderful and it, it can be for folks who have you know whatever their lifestyle may be maybe they travel a lot and so they can't or they don't feel that they can take on a, an animal full-time they wouldn't want to adopt but they have certain chunks of time where they could you know take in you know a, a dog or a cat that maybe needs a little bit of a rest and recuperation after a surgery for a week maybe a litter of kittens um, maybe a, yeah, a cat with a stray that just needs a little bit of time to adjust and kind of get back into a household rhythm. And then they're able to do that, and then they're off on another trip, and then when they come home, they can foster another animal. And it, it really gives them the flexibility to help, um, as you guys were able to, and it, it helps the animals and the organizations that are caring for them immensely. Mm -hmm. Now, if someone comes across a stray cat or dog like we seem to tend to do at my in-laws house so often we've actually had i don't know probably a dozen different cats and a couple dogs that we've uh, been able to help what should one do when they find a stray how can they help it what are the first things you should do and what shouldn't you do as well right well, I mean, certainly with dogs, you want to make sure that you're approaching the dog um, in, a, in a safe manner um, and not going to, to scare them or, or be viewed as a threat. Um, so understanding some dog body language is really helpful um, if you're going to be approaching a strange dog. 
certainly if you're not comfortable or the you know the dog doesn't seem to be that friendly uh, reaching out to your local animal control officer or your local police department uh, they will come out more than likely and, and pick up the dog uh, if you're unable to, to bring the dog to the shelter yourself so um, oftentimes it's going to be a lost dog just somehow got out of the house or got out of the fence there may be a, a collar and tag there may not be uh, if there is, then you might just want to give the, the phone number on it a ring um, and, and get the animal reunited with their owner without having to involve the shelter or law enforcement. But if uh, you don't find a collar or any sort of visible ID, then reaching out to your local shelter and your local animal control for, for dogs is really the first step. Um, many shelters have a, a pretty active return to owner program, so they're going to try to find a microchip or, or put out pictures of the dog. Um, they also take calls from people who have lost their dog. So they're going to try to reunite that dog with their owner um, to the best of their ability. And then, you know, after a few days, if they can't, then they probably will, you know, do a full assessment for the dog healthy and put them up for adoption. Um, on cats, it really depends on, on where you live. Um, some shelters, like if you're in an area where the shelters are doing very well. There's not a, a big problem of, of cat overpopulation in the community and the cat's friendly. Then, you know, bringing them to a shelter, you know, may be the best option. If, if, if they can, if they feel like the, the adoption is going to be a really likely outcome for that cat, then that can be a really good fit. Um, otherwise, if it's a, a feral cat or a cat that's not socialized to people at all, a shelter is not a great place for those cats because typically they're not going to adjust to living inside a home. They don't want to be touched. They don't want to be held. They don't want to be anywhere near people. So typically a shelter is, is going to really only have euthanasia as an option um, unless they do something called trap, neuter, return or return to field programs where they'll get the cat sterilized and vaccinated and make sure it's healthy and put it back into the colony or the community where that cat was living and doing quite well. Um, and then there are colony caregivers who manage these cat colonies um, that are already sterilized. So there's no more kitten, no more kittens being born and the population isn't growing. Over time, the cats will pass away from old age or illness um, and the numbers start going down. So that's a, a more humane approach for stray cats who really don't want to be in a home. But if the cat is social, seems like it might be a lost cat, then certainly giving the shelter a call or bringing the, the cat to the shelter hmm. could be a really good option. Yeah, you mentioned these programs of trapping and um, spaying and neutering and releasing for feral cats. Um, I'm looking on the at the stats again. These are the estimates from the the Humane Society of the United States that the estimated number of community cats, which includes strays and abandoned cats and feral cats um, in the U.S. is 30 to 40 million and only about 2% of those cats are spayed or neutered. So of course that's a huge population and very few that are spayed and neutered so that is a big uh, task to sort of control that, um, that population, isn't it? It is. Yes, yes, it absolutely is and in my work, I'm, you know, what I find so thrilling is, you know, in the past decade, 
so many organizations all over the country and municipalities and cities and counties and, you know, animal control, they're all now so on board with trying to sterilize and spay and neuter as many of these unowned cats as possible. So I think, you know, it, we don't have good data to tell us that the number is higher than two or three percent now. But I think it, it's going up because we've been, you know, the, the organizations that have high volume, high quality spay neuter clinics, I mean, they're bringing thousands of cats through their facilities every single year. It's, it's pretty incredible. So I think we are starting to see, again, in certain parts of the country, the number is starting to come down, but we don't have a really good way of tracking it and having that good data collection. So a lot of the estimates that you see, they're kind of a, you know, they're, a, they're an educated guess, but there's also a little more of an art than a science to kind of creating these estimates. So the number is big. Sterilization is still a huge, huge, huge need for these cats. But the good news is there's so many organizations out there that are now doing this work. Um, and anybody who's interested in that, you know, you can take a look in your own community and more than likely there's already a group there who's mobilized and fundraising and doing really good things for the unowned cats. Well, it also seems that even for some people with owned cats, it still seems to be a problem. Um, it says that... Um, the estimates for pets owners in underserved communities is, is also a problem. It says that you, you've estimated that there's about 23 million pets living in underserved communities in the United States. And of those, uh, about 87% of them are not spayed or neutered. Are there ways for, or are there organizations that help give free or very low cost spay and neutering um, to people who may not be able to afford um, it in the first place? There are, yes. And that is another, another element of, our, of the animal welfare field that really has been growing just in the past handful of years. Um, once we really started digging in and, and collecting that data, people you know, sort of sat up and took notice because for a while there, when you looked at owned cats and dogs, the sterilization rates are, are pretty high. You know, they're around 85%. Um, of, of, of owned cats and dogs are sterilized. And so we kept kind of doing what we were doing and, and that number just stayed where it was. And so we started saying, well, where, where are those, those remaining 15%? You know, how, are we, how do we find those animals? And lo and behold, we found that they're living in underserved communities where folks just don't have the money or the resources or even the access to be able to have they and neuter surgeries for their animals. And there's no lack of love or you know, compassion or desire for that, um, for their animals to be healthy and happy. It really is an issue of, you know, they don't have a car and they can't take their dog on public transportation, you know, for the 12 miles it takes to get to the, the closest veterinarian. Or, you know, they just don't have the, you know, the $25 or the $50 that the, you know, the quote-unquote low-cost sterilization service has or offers. So there are now a number of organizations that are going directly into these communities. They, you know, go and they go door-to-door -door and they let people know about the free services that they offer. They give out leashes and they give out collars and flea and tick treatment. 
um, and they schedule folks for sterilization surgery. They provide the transportation, so you know they pull up in a van. You know, Wednesday is sterilization day, and people meet them. You know, meet the van right in their own neighborhood. Get the animals all loaded up. They go. They have surgery. They come back the next day. You know, the um, the organization keeps in good contact with the the owners, so they know their animals are doing fine. Um, and it, it's made a huge, huge difference in these communities where it wasn't, again, that lack of, of, of compassion or that, that lack of desire to have these services. It just was a, a question of access. And so we needed to just think things through differently and say, how can we think about our services a little differently? And how do we reach folks who, you know, who don't have some of the privileges that some of the rest of us do? Yeah, that's that's great that it, it seems to be on a... Uh, things have been trending in the right direction with this, at least in the last few years. Uh, I actually, I have some um, statistics here I've found that are... Uh, I want to talk about euthanasia a little bit more. Um, these are actually fairly old statistics, but from what I saw, they were kind of the most recent survey that was done, rather than estimates. It was from 1997 by the... National Council on Pet Population Study and Policy. They were able to survey about a thousand shelters in the United States and that said that about roughly 64% of the 2.7 million animals that entered shelters in 1997 were euthanized. That was 56% of dogs entering and 71% of uh, cats entering shelters um, as cats were a little more likely to enter a shelter without um, identification of an owner and that only 15.8% of dogs and 2% of cats that entered shelters were reunited with their owners, and about 25% of dogs and 24% of cats that entered shelters ended up getting adopted. So these are still, you know, 20 years old, and you might have a better sense of what those are now, but it still seems like an, just an incredible amount of, of wasted um, pet lives. And, uh, of course, I'm sure that every shelter would not euthanize any of the animals uh, if they could, you know, because they, they exist to help them. But why, why does this still, why is euthanizing seem to be still so prevalent um, and happen so much? Yeah, you know, um, you know, as we've kind of been saying, and as you just said, you know, our field, the animal welfare field, has had a lot of really good progress. So, you know, 20 years ago, the numbers, as you said, were, you know, pretty shocking. And back in the 70s, they were far, far worse. Uh, and that's when we really start to, to see some, some actual data collection happening and you can get a good snapshot. So we're on the right trajectory. Euthanasia numbers are going down. The number of animals coming into facilities are, are going down. It's all headed in the right direction. It's slow. And every year you still have, you know, maybe one and a half million animals that are being unnecessarily unnecessarily euthanized, and that's that's one and a half million too many. You know, there's really no need for that. And and you hit it exactly, you know, the nail on the head that no one who goes into the animal welfare field, and I would hazard a guess that, you know, very, very few people in our in our country or in our world actually want to see animals euthanized. I mean it not we love our companion animals we love our dogs and cats we see them as incredible creatures who share our world and and nobody wants to see unnecessary unnecessary death for these animals 
it's a, a sad reality based on resource constraints in communities and shelters are trying I work with them you know all over the country every day and they are doing their utmost to avoid these situations they are utilizing foster homes they are thinking of new you know new programs to try they're sterilizing cats and putting them back into the community when you know when otherwise euthanasia might be their only other option you know they're trying so many different things they're you know they're fundraising to try to increase their capacity and their resources to help more animals they're talking with potential adopters to get more people to come in um, it's a never-ending quest to get these animals into loving homes. Um, we're never going to get to zero because there are some animals that euthanasia is the right option for them. It may be an animal that's too aggressive to be able to be put safely out into the community, or it may be an animal that is suffering too much. They have an illness. And, and there really isn't any other option. It's, you know, it's, it's less humane to keep them alive than it would be to let them go uh, in a humane manner. So we're never going to get to zero, but some shelters now, I mean, I, I work with a group here um, in Maine, and they have like a 98% placement rate, or a live release rate, they call it. So 98% of the animals coming into their, into their facility, and that's both dogs and cats, are leaving alive. They're going out, and euthanasia is reserved only for the, those very few that it is the right option. So we are getting there. It is slow, but all of the things that we've been talking about already, we just need to, you know, keep putting our shoulder in, you know, to the door and and, um, and keep pushing on it because it, it really is working. I wanted to ask you also about shelters that are considered, or they consider themselves, no-kill shelters. Um, because there seems to be, you know, people, if they find a stray animal, they might say, oh, I don't want to take it to this shelter, this local shelter, because it's a, not a no-kill shelter. Or I think there's a bit of confusion over exactly what that means as well. So what, what should we think about when we hear or when a, when a shelter calls itself a no-kill shelter? So yeah, so language here is, is very polarizing and, and there has been a lot of misinformation or misunderstanding around it. Um, many organizations that use that terminology, you know, they're putting out kind of their, their they're putting out their philosophy that they feel that no animal, you know, should be euthanized um, if there's a another option for that. So those organizations do still believe, like in the cases that I said with a, you know, an, uh, an incredibly aggressive animal or a really sick animal, that it is more humane to euthanize, then that's still an option that's on the table. But for an animal that is healthy or, you know, maybe just needs a little bit of medical treatment, maybe needs a little bit of behavior modification, you know, these animals that are what we call healthy or suitable. Um, or, or quote-unquote adoptable, that euthanasia is not an acceptable outcome. And really anybody in the animal welfare field that I've ever run into has that same feeling. The, the difference comes into how the organizations are structured uh, in terms of the incoming animals. So a no-kill or a limited admission shelter monitors the animals that are coming through their doors and they might refuse to take an animal that they don't think they can help. So if they know, okay, we we can't handle feral cats because we don't have a trap neuter return program 
there's no other options, we don't want to euthanize those cats. We're going to just say, don't bring them to us. We're not going to let them come through our door. Versus a, an open admission shelter will take any animal that comes to them. So even if they might not have a good outcome or they might be full, say they, you know, they're all of their kennels are full, they're not going to refuse to take that stray dog who shows up or that, that dog that's getting surrendered by their owner. So you kind of have these competing approaches in terms of how open and accessible they are to the community. When you have your, your doors open and you take anything coming through, you end up being really full and you end up maybe having to make some horrible decisions based on your resources. If you are able to say, no, I'm not going to take those animals because I don't have enough space, then you have the, the luxury of not having to make those difficult decisions. So it really is kind of a, a flow issue. Um, many organizations that are, that, that whether, they, whether or not they consider themselves to be limited or open admission, they're now doing what's called managed admission. And so if you say you had a cat um, as a stray or you found a litter of kittens and you called the shelter and you said, hey, I found this litter of kittens in my backyard. Can I come in and, and bring them to you? They might say, we're really full right now. It's, you know, it's June. We have a lot of kittens. We're really at capacity. If we gave you a litter box and some food, could you hang on to those kittens for a week? It would really help us out. And most people say, oh, yes, sure, I can do that. I didn't know that that was an option. Um, and so they kind of are, are spinning it a little bit and enlisting even more people to be temporary foster homes to help them manage the flow of animals coming through their doors. So they're never in a situation where they have so many that they have to make the unfortunate euthanasia decision. Yeah, that's that clears it up a lot. I didn't know all that about uh, no-kill shelters as, as they're sort of a limited, sort of a selective admission, which of course means it may mean that they, as they do not accept that animal, then, you know, who knows what happens to that animal then? Um, so it might not, you know, always be a better option for them. Right. And that's what you commonly see is, is you'll often have right in the same community, maybe in the same county or the same town, you'll have two different organizations with those different approaches. And, and that's really why is, you know, there's still a need for that open admission because, you know, it may be an animal that doesn't get taken by the, the limited admission one, and, and so then what happens to it? Um, so there's always a need for those open admission facilities and, and trying to help support them to make sure that they do have the resources that they need, that they do have the volunteers and the, and the time to be able to help all of the animals. It's really important, and when you you know when you start using terms like you know like no kill or you know that's the the quote unquote kill shelter, and, and we hear that, and it's incredibly unfortunate because those are the organizations that need support. No one's in this field to you know to euthanize animals. Nobody wants to do that, and all of the organizations need the community's help and support. Yeah, it's almost you're describing that they're sort of complementing each other. Uh, rather than being sort of opposed to each other, which is what I think the uh, uh, the general perception tends to be. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And that can, yeah, there are many communities where they do work really well together. Um, there was an example down in, in Washington, D.C., where they kind of had that dynamic. There were two organizations, um, and they actually just merged last year because they, they, over time, they grew really accustomed to one another. They understood which strengths each organization had, but that they had the same mission. Um, and so over time, they just got closer and closer, and, and they ended up merging, which is a, a really interesting um, outcome there. But in many communities, they do really work collaboratively, and they can really complement each other. I think it's also important to, uh, we've talked about euthanasia, but I think it's important to point out for those who might not know that euthanasia is a painless um, way of ending someone's life or an animal's life. It, as, as opposed, it's not like... A, um, an execution or so you know or you know with a with a gun or something like that is that it is a at least a um, it's it's a humaner way to end a life of course ending a life is not as humane usually as continuing a life but um, it's I think it's just important to point that out for people who um, are not quite aware with euthanasia it is, yeah. Yeah, and it's also highly regulated. Every state has um, training requirements. There are only certain people who are allowed to, to conduct euthanasias, um, obviously veterinarians, and there can be trained euthanasia technicians in shelters as well, um, so that they, they are doing it to the utmost of their ability. They, they know what they're doing, they take it seriously, and they are providing it the, you know, the most humane death that they possibly can. Now we've been talking mostly about dogs and cats, which tend to be the most common stray animals. But I do know of shelters that accept uh, other other uh, pets as well, rodents and birds and reptiles and rabbits, and that there's also organizations that help to adopt horses and larger animals. So are there are there any other? Do you know of any other considerations people should have when? Uh, helping the lives of other animals beyond what you do for cats and dogs. I mean, you're probably not going to come across a stray horse, you know, wandering around or something like that. But is there anything we have to think differently for these other animals? I think, you know, first off is just thinking of a shelter when you're looking for one of these animals. And, and you're right, a lot of people don't think about that. They, you know, they think about a shelter for dogs and cats and, and they're not thinking, oh, you know, I'd like to adopt a hamster and, and the shelter is a good place to go and see if they have one um, or, or maybe several. Um, you know, so really getting that into the front of, of folks' minds um, as opposed to, you know, buying from a, a pet store or, or some other outlet, um, that these animals do very commonly come through shelters and, and they're just as much in need of homes as, as any other. Um, when I worked at, at a shelter in southern Maine, we had, it was actually not, not uncommon to have stray rabbits um, who were very social rabbits and, you know, had gotten out of their hutches or something. So we, we would have stray rabbits. Um, we had some stray ferrets as well. Um, but typically we see them when people get overwhelmed. So maybe they, you know, had, had, a, had a mouse or a, a gerbil or two thought maybe that they were both boys, turns out one was a boy, one was a girl, all of a sudden they have, you know, eight gerbils that they now need to take care of, and so the, the babies may come in along with one of the adults to be rehomed. 
so those organizations, you know, regularly have all different sorts of small animals that do need homes, and they're a great place to look for them if um, any of your listeners are thinking of adopting one of those more unique animals. Um, and I think it's also just a, a matter of recognizing, hey, you know, we can help support the shelters and the rescues to care for these animals, too. So if you love horses, you know, maybe finding a local shelter who also does large animal rescue and, and donating to them or offering your expertise, becoming a volunteer to help them, you know, help them train the horses that they have or help them care for them. Because not every shelter is going to have staff members who are really great on every single species that comes through their doors. So if you have a particular focus or an interest or, a, you know, knowledge, of those, of those more exotic species, it can be a really good opportunity to get involved with your local group and, and share that knowledge. Well, you almost answered the question I was just about to ask, which was, uh, you know, beyond what we've talked about with spaying, neutering, adopting, and fostering, what are other ways people can help to save pet lives? You just mentioned volunteering and uh, donating to other um, to organizations like this and to shelters. But uh, are, there, are there any other things that uh, people can do and really get involved? Absolutely. I mean, there, you know, really the sky's the limit. I mean, offering up any, like if you, you know, say you are an artist and or you, you know, you are a, a, a beer brewery or whatever you do in your life that kind of, um, you know, is exciting to you, you could help maximize that and, and be able to, to help animals. So maybe you contribute to a fundraiser or you have a hold an event at your restaurant to, you know, to help um, drive donations to the shelter. Maybe you just put up signage in your, you know, your local business that you own. You could help advertise an animal. Um, maybe you work for a newspaper and you're able to give a little spot each week to highlight an adoptable animal. So there's really no limit to the creative ways that a person could use your own talents to help benefit shelter animals. Um, the other piece is, is getting involved kind of as an advocate. And some people shy away from it. You know, they don't want to be that, you know, that strong voice out leading a, a rally or something like that. But you don't need to do that in order to be an advocate. It really is just speaking up. When you feel like something's important to you, or maybe there's a local ordinance that's being changed and they're talking about, you know, a, a pet limit ordinance, like you can only have two dogs. Maybe you want to speak up and say, hey, you know what, I have two dogs right now, but maybe I want a third. And, and I think that's okay. So being an advocate for animals in your own community and whatever that may look like, there's, there's all different ways to get involved. It could be calling your state legislator when there's a, a bill that's really important to help protect cats. Um, in New Hampshire, last year, we worked on a bill that would allow shelters to adopt out cats that have um, FIV, which is like a, a feline immunodeficiency virus. Um, the cats do very well. They, you know, they can live long lives. They just need a little bit of extra medical care. And there was a, a law on the books that said that shelters could not adopt those cats out. And so they had to euthanize them. They had no other option for those cats. Um, and we were able to work with legislators and, and advocates called and said, I want to adopt these cats and these cats are great. And we were able to change that law. So there's all different options that people can really use their voice 
um, and their compassion for animals in incredible ways. Well, that's a lot, a lot of different things, but let's, uh, I want to try to focus this now because we really, on this podcast, try to focus on the uh, most impactful and practical ways that people can sort of today make a difference in um, um, helping save animal lives and helping uh, to prevent wasted lives. So what, what would you say would be your top three sort of easy, practical, most impactful things that people could do today that would um, uh, help to save animals' lives? Sure. So, I mean, I know adoption isn't always uh, option number one for folks. So thinking what else you could do today for your local shelter or rescue. So it may be dropping off some towels that you have sitting around. Maybe you were going to give them to the thrift store. Shelters need towels all the time. They're constantly running through them. Or maybe some old animal toys that you have. You know, you had a dog and, and the dog passed away and you've got these toys sitting around that are in good shape. So thinking about donating to your local shelter is great, and also volunteering. So even if you're not in a place to adopt, um, fostering, coming in, just coming in on a Saturday and and sitting with the cats and brushing them and, and relaxing with them is actually really good for them. They need that stress relief or the cats that just want to be able to cuddle up on someone's lap for a little while. So there's so many different options and it's really just getting out and seeing what the need is in your community. Um, the other piece that's really easy to do is, I kind of think of it as just being an ambassador with your own animal. So having them sterilized, having them up to date on their vaccine and, and able to, to see a veterinarian for a wellness checkup once a year and talking with people about that, you know, encouraging them to, hey, my, you know, my dog just went and got his his rabies vaccine and look at the collar and tag, you know, the cool tag that I got for him. Just kind of putting it out there of, hey, this is how we should be treating our dogs and cats in our in our homes and in our community. Uh, and being that very visible ambassador of other people to, to look at you and say, oh, yeah, I want to I want a collar and tag for my cat, too. Um, or I'm going to, oh, yeah, I need to make an, an appointment for Fluffy because he's due on his vaccine. So it's just the little things that, you know, it's all about how we treat animals in our society. Uh, and we all can do so many different things just on the day-to-day -day level to help that. Wonderful. Well, this has been, a, I think, a really good talk. I've learned a lot from this conversation with you. Thank you, uh, Katie, for uh, taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, thank you so much. I greatly enjoyed it and I'm so happy that you had this uh, important topic on. To end this episode, I want to challenge our listeners this week to take one of Katie's recommendations for helping save and reducing waste in the lives of pets and to put it into action. Reach out to a local animal shelter and donate old towels, use pet toys, or ask them what resources they are in need of. Visit a local shelter and spend time playing with the animals, and if you already have pets, make sure you are giving them the best care, that they are spayed or neutered and have all their vaccinations, and set a good example and be an advocate for others to do the same. For more information and resources on this topic, please visit www.humanesociety.org slash animals slash pets. And thanks so much for listening, and please stay tuned for the next episode. And until next time, I'm Keen Southerd, and I wish you an unwasteful life.